All right, well, we're on Lesson 10. Uh, we're continuing our, our uh, study of the attributes of God. And specifically, last week we started uh, looking at some of the significant attributes under the heading of goodness, right? And so prior to that, we, we looked at some of the, the key attributes related to God's greatness. And do you remember what the, the main difference between those two categories is? The goodness attributes are... Yes, communicable. That was the key word. In other words, God communicates or he gives to us to share in those attributes of his. So when we say we would be like him, it's in the sense of these moral attributes, the goodness attributes, because the greatness attributes, uh, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, all those are reserved for God alone, right? Um, so we're continuing in our study of the various aspects of God's goodness, and we're today beginning with his justice. Just. God, I'm on uh, page 77 in the notes. God is also most just and awesome in his judgments, hating all sin, and uh, who will by no means clear the guilty. All sin will be judged, and his judgments are always righteous. So there are several words here, various forms of the word justice, judgments, judged, and so on, but also the word righteous. And I don't know if you remember, but... Um, I think I may have mentioned earlier that the words uh, just and righteous are basically interchangeable. It's basically the same concept. Uh, very often in Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see them used in the same sentence as a way of emphasis. Um, just and right. Um, that kind of thing. So, uh, what does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to be just? Basically, what it comes down to is it means doing the right thing. When we say that God is most just, um, and his judgments are always righteous, that means whatever God does is right. He always does the right thing. So what's the difference between being righteous and being holy? Do they not work together? They Well, of course, all of God's attributes I mean, work together, but yes, they're similar, they're related, but there's some differences, right? Well, when you're being holy, you're, I mean, that's, that purity, that mm -hmm. moral purity, you can do what's right without being pure. Okay. That's, that's 
pretty much the core of it. Um, the way I think of it is that holiness has to do with being and righteousness has to do with doing. Okay, so you do righteous things and you be holy, right? Um, and so, yeah, is it possible to do righteous things without being holy? She said all, all of our works are like filthy rags. So you, we, even if we, well, there's several layers to that. But I think of uh, in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you'll not see the kingdom of God. Now, I'm sure that those who were listening to him there said, whoa, who could be more righteous than the Pharisees? They always were doing, keeping the law meticulously and going beyond. If anybody could be righteous, it's them, and he wants us to be more righteous than the Pharisees? But what was Jesus getting at? The heart. Yeah, the heart. And so often he would, directly speaking with the Pharisees and scribes and so on, say um, things like, woe to you hypocrites. Um, and, and then give an example that said they, they um, like, uh, you're like whitewashed tombs, Jesus said. Which what? They looked great on the outside, but then he said, inside they're just filled with dead man's bones. And so when Jesus was saying our righteousness needs to go beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees, he was thinking about doing the right thing, but doing it for the right reasons, with the right heart, right? Um, not a hypocritical doing of the right things and not a superficial, just for show, kind of doing the right things. That's a, um, what, a man-made righteousness. Even if it is doing the right things, it's completely like filthy rags if it's not done for the right reasons, from the right heart. And Jesus didn't pull any punches with the Pharisees about the need for the right heart. Um, so, yeah, justice is always doing the right thing. So when God does something justly, he's doing what is right. And so what would be some opposites of that? So if, if a judge who is called on to implement the law and to always do what is right, if a judge uh, is compromised somehow, that he, he would often not do the right thing because maybe there's a bribe, maybe there's some connection with the guilty and he kind of lets them off. Um, but God's not like that. God always does what is right. And sometimes what is right is judging the wicked, punishing the wicked. But his justice goes beyond that. He's also doing the right thing when he uh, is compassionate. So let's look at some of these verses here, starting on page 77. 
looking at the attributes of God. Currently, we're looking at his justice. So let's go down to the fourth one there, Deuteronomy 10, 17. Could someone read that for me? Okay, Diane. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. So if he were to show partiality or to take a bribe, um, justice would be perverted, right? He would not be doing the right thing. He would be sort of controlled by, influenced by those who are affected by his judgments. And God doesn't do that. He's not affected in a way that would compromise doing the right thing. Let's look at the very next one there, Deuteronomy 32. Could someone read that? The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. See how it says righteous and upright? It's just emphasizing that same concept. Righteousness means doing the right thing. Upright means you always do the right thing, right? Um, and the um, opposite of that is injustice, right? Injustice is not doing the right thing. Okay, let's go down to the bold verse there, Second Chronicles 19.7. Can someone volunteer for that one? Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or taking of a bribe. So that's a good reminder, right? That we 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 can't we can't influence God to make judgments the way we want him to decide them in our favor. Right? That just goes against his impartiality is justice. Uh, how about the next one, Nehemiah 9, 33. However thou art just in all that has come upon us, for thou hast dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. Yeah, so in Nehemiah, of course, this is uh, after, or maybe while, the um, the, the Jews were coming back from the Babylonian captivity, back to Jerusalem, and uh, they were recognizing that God was had exiled them as part of the punishment that they deserved for acting so wickedly. Uh, but now that he's brought them back, they're acknowledging that and seeking to follow him. But in the process, it just, they just compare God's faithfulness, that is his faithfulness to his character and his word, always doing the right thing, compared with them. We have acted wickedly. Right? Just the opposite. And so they say, you are just in all that has come upon us. What you did to us was right. It didn't feel good. <laughs> we didn't like being in exile but we acknowledge that what you have done is right. In fact, it's, it's what you said you would do if we, if we um, uh, forsake you. Okay, let's go down a couple more to Job 8.3. Does God pervert justice? 
or does the Almighty pervert what is right? What kind of questions are those? Rhetorical. Rhetorical. Meaning what? The answer is clear. You know what the answer is. What is the answer to these questions? No. <laughs> no. God um, does not pervert justice. To pervert justice is to do something different from what is right, which means it's wrong, right? To pervert justice. And it and in the same way, uh, um, perverting justice and perverting what is right, what's the difference between those? None. It's just saying the same thing again. Right? Okay, Psalm 19, verse 9. Can someone take that one for us? Diane? The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. His judgments are righteous. Makes sense. He, what he judges, what he does, what he decides, everything he does is right, which makes him righteous altogether. And his, his, um, his actions, his word, everything is just, everything he does is right and good. Now Psalm 51, of course, is part of David's prayer of confession after he sinned with Bathsheba and, and uh, Uriah the Hittite. Uh, Psalm 51, against you and you only I have sinned and have done evil in your sight so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. So again, there's this contrast. We are not righteous, God is. God always does what's right, we don't. And um, so he's, because of his, his justice, because he always does what is right, that evil, and because he's holy, that evil can't just be ignored. He can't just sweep it under the rug, as, as it were, right? And so here David is acknowledging uh, the justice of God's, God's uh, judgments. Let's flip the page, 78, second one down, it's also from the Psalms, Psalm 92, 15. To declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Yeah, he's upright. There's no unrighteousness in him. Everything he does is right. And when he says he's a rock, what's it referring to? Strength? Immovable. Steadfastness. Steadfastness, he doesn't change. He's going to always do what is right. Dependable. Right? And similarly there in Psalm 119, verse 137, can someone read that? Righteousness are thou, O Lord, and upright are thou judgment. Yes, again, righteous and upright are the way he's being described. Um, upright in his judgments, because everything he does is right and good. Um, 
doesn't mean everything he does is pleasant to us, but it's right. It's, we would say, justified. It's, it's, it's right. He does only what is right. Then in the New Testament, if we look at Acts 17, 31, I'm on page uh, 78 now. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Right, so this is uh, Paul speaking um, at the Areopagus in Athens. It's kind of a, making an evangelistic appeal to the philosophers there. And this is the, sort of the conclusion of his, his appeal to them. Speaking of God, our creator, uh, he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world. How? In righteousness. He's going to judge. Everything in that judgment is going to be right. Uh, there may have been a lot of unrighteousness in our experience. God's going to settle it all righteously. Um, and of course, that's through his son, the Messiah. Now, I wanted to read through Romans 2 here, this long section here on page 78. Uh, you see how the, the various aspects of this come together. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things, and the such things are a list of, of uh, perversions and, and, and evil and, and so on. And do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because, you're stup because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgments of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Now, that all caps there is a direct quote from a verse in the Old Testament. So the Apostle Paul is, is um, um, appealing for his readers to remember what God has already declared, even in the Old Testament. And so uh, he continues, uh, well, let me go back a little bit. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation in the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. How? To those who by perseverance in doing good, what, what is doing good? It's righteousness, right? <clears throat> perseverance um, in, in doing good, seek for the glory and honor and immortality to them eternal life but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness wrath what comes to them is wrath and indignation there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek 
But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Justified. Now, there's a word we haven't used yet in this context. What do you think it means to be justified, given what we understand about justice? Declared righteous. Okay. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. It's a pretty uh, foundational passage on the nature of God's justice. Um, He's just not in the future as judge, sort of the final judgment, but he's he's just and right in everything he does, everything he says. It's by his character. Okay, let's look at a couple more. Top of page 79. Uh, Later in Romans 9, verse 14, the very first one. Can someone read that? What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God. Is there? May it never be. Yeah, there's... Is there any injustice with God? No. It's another rhetorical question. Right? And then uh, the next verse there, Second Thessalonians 1. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Yeah, so that's, that's actually a little interesting. Um, so the context there is about persecution, persecution of believers, and it says specifically um, suffering um, for the cause of Christ, uh, for the name of Christ, and... Um, So when people persevere and continue in faith in the midst of that persecution and affliction, um, that doesn't seem just at the moment, does it? Where those who are suffering in that way are subject to the injustice of those who are persecuting them and and, uh, afflicting. But what does it remind us? That God has the last word. And everything he does is right. Justice will be um, 
will be right, it will be complete, it'll be certain. It is certain. And it's only just for him to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So, what's the takeaway from that for those who are persecuted? Yeah, have the long-term view, not the short-term view. Yeah, what we're experiencing now may be injustice, but that's not God's injustice. God will correct everything eventually. Right. Well, he tells us that he's the judge of everything. That's we're right. Not. Yeah. Right. And not to take our own vengeance. Right. Right. Okay. So we talked about um, justice and righteousness. They're basically the same thing. They're often used interchangeably, sometimes together for emphasis. Uh, righteousness and holiness, I thought used to be, I used to think that righteousness and holiness were basically the same thing. But they're not. As you see how they're used in scripture. Um, holiness is about being, and righteousness is about doing. Right? And righteousness and justice are basically the same thing. It's about doing the right thing. Okay, any questions, other thoughts here on righteousness? Can I go off the board a little bit? I don't know. How, how far <laughs> off the board do you want to go? I, just, I was thinking about Israel and all that's happening with God and everything. And, I, and God said that I cause war and I cause it to cease. I think that in this spiritual guidance that God gives to us as we read his word, that we should be more in prayer about what's happening rather than to think that uh, man have the power doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ultimately it's, it's a spiritual it was, battle, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, and um, it's certainly complicated but I think what we're seeing now is very similar to a lot of what we see in the Old Testament. Even the nation of Israel doing things, attempting things, not under the direct instruction of God, but of their own wisdom and, and so on. But also, you've got all sorts of uh, God-haters who are... Um, persecuting Israel. But, you know, what does the Bible say about um, Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah. King of Babylon, who took the Israelites, the, the those from Judah particularly, into captivity. That was God's, God's work. That was God's just work to use um, this pagan king who Eventually, he would grab a hold of personally, God would, and humble him um, and bring him to realize that there's really, you know, he's not the ultimate king. God is the ultimate king. Uh, God can do that even with pagan kings. And he can use pagan kings and has used pagan kings and leaders and countries to accomplish his purposes and it's all just.
even though there's an unjust people he uses to accomplish it. Yeah. Can I share, um, <clears throat> I don't know how we got on the topic last night, uh, our family was sitting around the dinner table, and we talked about being a part of a jury, right, and my son Michael, 19 years old, got to sit on a jury last year, and so we were talking about that experience, it's one of my lifelong dreams is to sit on a jury, just because I feel it's so foundational to our country, and I related that I've been deployed to a country where they had no rule of law whatsoever and so just comparing you know those two but what what struck me as as we're going through this um i'm looking at psalm 92 the lord is upright he is my rock we talked about god's immutability right his unchangeableness can we could you imagine a god who changed when it came to justice and i just i sometimes take that for granted god is just but but my goodness, can you imagine if, if he changed his views on that? If sometimes he was just and sometimes he was not. I mean, that would just be chaotic. And just so grateful for that attribute, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very much fundamental to all of morality. You know, the, the current thinking out there is that morality is whatever you make it to be. You know, what's right for you doesn't have to be right for me. And can you imagine a God like that? You know, what is morality today, God? <laughs> um, yeah, it's so sad that people don't understand that. I have a quick question. Yes, sir. On um, God's justice as it relates to like the afflictions that we face as believers, um, just curious. Um, like in some of the Psalms of David, he's talking about how his enemies afflict him, and he's calling out to God, mm-hmm. "Do not justice on them." Mm-hmm. Now, as we live after Christ's time, having seen God send His Son to die for our sins and take on our iniquity, um, when we face affliction, I'm just wondering what. Is our response to wait for God to enact his vengeance on those who have afflicted us in in that way? Or should we look back at the cross and say, well, Lord, you've already, we're not deserving of any more than what you've already done for us. Mm -hmm. Or is it a mix of both? Well, uh, probably something of a mix of both. Let's go to Matthew 5. You remember the Beatitudes? Uh, Go to verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. In other words, they're doing what's right, but they're being persecuted. Um, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, again, the instruction is, let's not be short-sighted about what's going on here. Let's take the long-term view. But, it's not just a matter of, okay, things will work out in the end, but it's also 
Um, let's go to First Peter. First Peter two eighteen. Servants, be subject to your masters without with all fear, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are crooked. For this finds favor. For if, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unrighteously, for what credit is there if, when you sin, you are harshly treated and you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this finds favor with God. And then he says in verse 21, For to this you have been called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps, who did no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, who, being reviled, was not reviling in return, while suffering, he was uttering no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness by his wounds, you were healed. So I think God is interested both in our having the long-term view that he is just, it's going to work out according to his justice eventually. But it's not just that. I think he's also saying our response to it now um, is to not lash back out of a sense of our own trying to achieve justice, but rather enduring it with patience in a way that A, follows the example of Christ, and B, is a testimony to our persecutors. So God can use, in his goodness, in his righteousness, and sovereignty, he can use our being persecuted to bring conviction on those even now, those who are persecuting us. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody who's persecuting us will be convicted and turn to Christ and so on, but um, whether they do or not, our response is evidence of what God has done in our heart. And they, it puts on display the fact that we're not responding like they're expecting we're going to respond. They want to see us lash out and kind of laugh at us, but when we respond in a Christ-like way, well, let me read another passage. Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Sounds kind of like the Sermon on the Mount, right? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. By being of the same mind toward one another, not being haughty in mind, but associating with the humble. Do not be wise in your own mind, never paying back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, being at peace with all men. And verse 19, never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
But then also quoting from the Old Testament, he writes, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What do you suppose it means you'll, burn, you'll heap burning coals on his head by responding in a, in a gracious, loving way? Maybe guilty is too strong of a word, but it brings conviction mm-hmm. and guilt. That's really the yeah. best thing I can think of. Yeah. Will that always be the response? Not necessarily, or not necessarily immediately. But that's not up to us. That's up to God. Um, and so it's clear from Scripture that our, our response is, is key uh, if we face injustice here in this life. And it's partly for our um, benefit, but ultimately it's for God's glory. And if he's using this and us as a participant in it to accomplish his greater purposes, sometimes in the lives of those persecutors, praise God. Interesting stuff. It's all about God's justice. Pastor, I was thinking about... um I read the story of The Hiding Place, mm-hmm. the story of uh, Corrie Ten Boom, who was uh, a Dutch woman whose family hid Jewish people from the Nazis. Eventually they were in prison. And the thing that always inspired me about that story was her sister, Betsy. Her sister never, her faith never wavered. She ended up not surviving the camp. But one of the things that uh, always struck me was when her sister insisted that they pray for their captors. And Corey's reaction was, you must be crazy. Why would we pray for them? They're, they're cruel and heartless. And But her sister said we were to pray for our enemies. And I was always kind of inspired by that story. Yeah, it's a real-life example. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, let's move on. We're on page 79, move on to God's faithfulness. God is faithful to all his promises and covenants. His word is absolutely reliable. His character is completely dependable. His promises of blessings are always fulfilled. His warnings of judgment are real. And apart from repentance on the part of those who are warned, they are always carried out. His predictions of the future always come true. All those are aspects of God's faithfulness. Uh, So that first passage there in Genesis 9, it's referring to um, uh, right after Noah and his family uh, went through the flood and uh, departed from the ark and God says to them, when the bow, the rainbow, is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and the living creatures of all flesh that is on the earth. So God had made this covenant unilaterally with Noah and with all his descendants that he would not destroy the earth by flood again. And the rainbow is... uh, uh, 
a constant reminder of that. And so he's remembering, right? He's, he's going to be faithful to keep up his, his word. Um, and this was unilateral. It wasn't something that he and Noah negotiated and, and so on. It was God just said, this is what I'm committing to do. And we know he's going to always do that because why? He is faithful to his word, his commitments. Let's go down several verses to Jeremiah 32, 40, about in the middle of that box there. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Right, so God entered into several covenants with people at various times. Uh, I mentioned the covenant with Noah, the Noahic covenant. Uh, Covenant with Abraham, right? Uh, Covenant even with uh, David. And here in Jeremiah, he's speaking of, the context here is, is, during the Babylonian captivity, when all looks pretty bleak, right? Uh, Jeremiah, at a couple of places, uh, God revealed through Jeremiah that that captivity in Babylon would last 70 years, but only 70 years. And among the other things, Isaiah or uh, Jeremiah and others prophesied was a, not only a return to the land, but a future for Israel where he would write his law on their hearts. And here he says uh, he'll make an everlasting covenant with them and not turn away from them to do good. He would put the fear of him, God, in their hearts. So that's a promise. That's you can take that to the bank. That's solid. It's going to happen. God committed to that. Let's go down. Um, yes? I did a study on God's covenants, and one thing that the author wrote was that he was the covenant maker, covenant keeper God. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm currently in Hebrews, and Hebrews 6, um, 16, it's actually speaking specifically about this covenant with Abraham, really with himself. Uh, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, and owe this, um, and owe this final for confirmation. So when God desired to show and convince them to the heirs of his promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, which we who have what um, for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So this covenant which he made with two unchangeable things, which is impossible for God to lie really with himself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Remaking of the God's character and he being the covenant maker and covenant God. Right. Mm-hmm. So if he makes a covenant but doesn't keep it, then what does that say about God? He's not faithful. He's changing. He's not dependable. 
but he makes covenants because he commits himself, himself to doing various things. In his mind, it's already done. He's outside of time. He's taking, taking that all into account. But his faithfulness, it's his character. It's impossible for him to lie. He commits to it. It's going to happen. He says it. We know it's true. Um, that's because he's faithful. Can you imagine you know, a, a God who's not faithful, right? Um, we're surrounded by unfaithfulness. Uh, people who are not faithful in one way or another, not keeping their word, not even remembering sometimes, right? Uh, but we don't have to point the finger very far. We're the same way, right? And to imagine a God who is completely faithful, he always keeps his word, he speaks the truth, and that truth doesn't change. Uh, he's faithful. Romans 11 reminds us here that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What does irrevocable mean? He doesn't take them back. They're solid, rock solid. Right? Uh, the next one there, 1 Corinthians 1 9. Can someone read that for us? God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, as part of God's faithfulness, he called us into his family through Christ. He's faithful to uh, his character, his promises, his word. Our relationship with him is, is one of the consequences of that. He followed through. Um, and then the next one here, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, is a favorite passage. Someone want to read that? Diane? No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. So here's this interaction between God's care for us, his faithfulness to us, and yet we... Um, often face temptations, even persecutions, temptations to doubt, to not trust. But what's the assurance here? Because of his faithfulness, it's not just a matter of, of us hanging on to him and doing the right thing and just hoping for the best. No, he's hanging on to us. <laughs> um, and because of his, his faithfulness, um, nothing gets by him, and um, he, won't, he won't let us endure anything that's outside of his will. And often he has purposes for the trials and the, and the frustrations and whatever. Diane? So this is a very silly but real example of him providing a way of escape. 
I can think of several times when I've been on the phone with someone and we're having a conversation and I'm about to fix my mouth to criticize somebody, say something that I know I shouldn't, and then there is a call on the other line. And it's just enough time for the conversation to take a turn in the other direction or to stop. And I know, God, that's you telling me that when this person gets back on the line, I need not do that. I haven't always taken the way of the space, but many times I have. So sometimes we see it and just don't take that opportunity to correct ourselves. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, sometimes in those situations we just need a pause, put things on pause and, or reset or whatever, to think not just in the, in the moment, but think in the big picture, put things in context, take a deep breath. <laughs> and sometimes God, uh, well, he's promising because of his faithfulness to... Um, not put us in a situation where we have no choice but to sin. Okay, uh, the next one that's bold, a memory verse here, First Thessalonians 5, 24. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Yes, so what he will bring to pass has lots of contexts and applications, I'm sure, uh, but it's all grounded in his faithfulness. And um, he hasn't just placed us here and then say, well, good luck. I hope you make it. <laughs> uh, he's, he's faithful to the end, to lead us, protect us, and so on. Getting back to our, the, our reality of our own character, 2 Timothy 2.13, if, if we are faith, faithless, now what does it mean if we are faithless? When we are faithless, since we are faithless, uh, but certainly um, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And that's true, really, of all of God's character. He can't violate anything of his character. He doesn't change. He's, if he's faithful, he's always faithful. If he's right, he always does right. right? It's just his character. His, his attributes. Um, we're not like that, inherently. Um, we tend to be fickle, right? And to have changing uh, thoughts, aspirations, uh, responses. We're, we're not dependable and faithful like God is. But the good news is, let's flip the page to the homework here, and particularly the application, provides scripture verses that indicate that or how we are to become just and faithful. So we're talking about faithful for the moment. Do you know of some passages that indicate that God wants us to be faithful also? A communicable attribute of God? Well, when you think about um, in Galatians talking about the fruit of the Spirit, mm -hmm. faithfulness is one of the things that is listed. Yeah, and what are those character qualities, those fruit of the Spirit? It's God's character. 
right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. Um, God's character is what the Holy Spirit builds in us. It's the fruit of his labor in us. And integral, that's the word I'm looking for, integral to that is faithfulness. But you can't separate these. Uh, we'll get there someday when we talk about um, uh, the Christian life and, and uh, our sanctification. But um, unlike the gifts of the Spirit, which not everybody has all of them, right? God has given us one or maybe two or so. But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is the same for everybody. He's building in us godliness, God's character. And it's not really limited necessarily to the things that are listed there, but they're evidence of the godliness that isn't there naturally in us, but he builds in us as we cooperate with him. Um, so we can't say, well, he hasn't given me the fruit of patience. No, hey, wait a minute. That's God's character. He's building God's character in you. That may not come natural to you, but the Holy Spirit can build that in you. And in fact, he probably puts you in circumstances where you've got no choice but to be patient. He's building that in us. For, for uh, uh, It may be easier for some and harder for others. Faithfulness, he's building that in us. Any other verses about our being faithful? Consistent, maybe another synonym. Consistent with God's character of faithfulness. Yeah. Bob? Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen, and twenty, the Great Commission. God's commanding us to spread the gospel, which requires faithfulness. I was reading Hebrews eleven and Hebrews eleven and twelve, and just a list of all God's people who are faithful, mm-hmm. and the exhortation in the beginning of Hebrews. 12 is ultimately following the example of Christ who was so right. and remains faithful. Right. And that, that cloud of witnesses from, from chapter 11, uh, but ultimately Christ himself. Good. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.2 comes to mind. 
2, um, where Paul encourages Timothy to uh, entrust the things that Paul has been teaching him, entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Faithfulness is, is a part of our growth. And so he's saying men who are not necessarily all the way there, but men who are committed to doing the right thing, men who are faithful and dependable, um, they've shown some progress in becoming Christ-like. Teach these things to them so that they can teach others also. Faithfulness is very key there. Uh, what about just? You think of some passages that indicate that not only is God just, but we are to be just as well? The first one that comes to mind for me is Micah 6.8. Seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Very good. We read earlier from uh, the Beatitudes, and uh, I actually quoted... But if you look at uh, Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. But then in verse 20, he says, um, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he calls us to be righteous, uh, but it's not just doing the right thing, it's doing the right thing for the right reason from the heart, a heart of devotion to God, of worship to God. All right. Any other thoughts, questions? And only one thing, because God is faithful, we have a complete assurance of our, our salvation. Yeah, there's the, the twin the twin realities that our salvation doesn't depend on our works it's all God's work but also the second reality that God is faithful and um, he hasn't saved us and then he's just hoping that we'll hang on for dear life and we'll continue no he's hanging on to us he's faithful to bring us through to the final um, fruition of that salvation. And because he's faithful, we know it's going to happen. There could be no assurance of salvation apart from the faithfulness of God. Right? Um, 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter says that the spirit gives life. He has made us sufficient um, for that need. So he initiated it, he fulfilled it, it's all his doing. Um, that's encouraging. Not only encouraging, but it's, it gives us assurance mm -hmm. that our salvation is secure. Uh, not because of our merit, but because of his merit and his faithfulness. And it's all for his glory, not ours anyway, right? All right. I'm not exactly sure what the time is here. They haven't changed the clocks, but it looks like it's only an hour off. It's quarter of. Yeah. So it's probably time for us to, to wind down. Let me go close in prayer.